0: Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1 with All Care Pharmacy. Discover a healthcare team that's always here for you at All Care Pharmacy, Ireland's largest community pharmacy network. Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1. A yawning gap in child sentencing legislation. That was how Judge Tony Hunt recently described the lack of a power for the courts to review or suspend sentences imposed on children who've been convicted of serious crimes. And that sparked a broader discussion about sentencing options in recent weeks. But even before a case gets to that stage, we're also facing huge challenges with delays in the judicial system. In some courts, people who are out on bail, quite possibly innocent people of course, can be waiting twenty-seven months for a trial. So there are major questions about how to reform various aspects of the legal system. Now I'm joined in the studio by Sarah Phelan, who's senior counsel and chair now of the Council of the Bar of Ireland. Good morning Sarah. Hello, Thank Claire, you very, much, very for, much for having me on. for for coming in. You have a new policy as well on the issue of gender equality, which I want to talk to you about. That's another challenge facing the legal system. But on the sentencing issue now, first of all, and that yawning gap that I mentioned uh, Justice Tony Hunt referred to. This was in relation to the sentencing of a 17-year-old boy who was found guilty of murder, the murder of the woman, uh, Joran Setseg Sarindorg. He was 14 years old at the time. Now, Justice Hunt imposed a sentence of detention for life, which was backdated to January of twenty twenty one when the boy first went into detention and there'll be a review after thirteen years. But do you think that more guidance is needed when it comes to sentencing children for serious crimes like murder?
1: Absolutely. I think the whole issue with sentencing children, Claire, has to be looked at in the context of what 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 the sentencing is to achieve. So children and then sentencing of children, it should be focused around rehabilitation and reintegration back into society because, let's face it, children aren't fully mature when crimes would have been committed and it seems to be that once one turns 18, obviously the adult justice system and and, and the sentencing comes into play. But really... Children don't automatically become mature at the age of eighteen, so there is a, there is a, I think a larger societal issue to be to be considered in terms of how children are sentenced, whether suspended sentences should be allowed, and I know that was one of the issues in in in, in the in the recent case, and then. How they, when they age out or become eighteen, how they should be dealt with, and and, and whether they should automatically be treated as adults, or whether should be there should be, I suppose, a, an interregnum, where, that allows them to mature. Because let's face it, I think most people are don't automatically become mature at the age of eighteen. And those issues need to be dealt with, do they, in legislation? They do. So the Children Act 2001, which is the legislation that governs the Children Court and the criminal dealing with children who've committed crimes doesn't actually allow for a suspended sentence to be Mm -hmm. imposed on on a child or for that sentence to be reviewed. So there will have to be legislative reform. But I do know that Minister Harris has signposted that that reform is going to be considered.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, and on on in general then to sentencing and sentencing uh, data, there was a report commissioned last month which found there's a lack, a serious lack of sentencing data in this country and that a sentencing database should be established. Is that not something, I think people outside of of your field would have expected that that would have existed already. I mean, is this long past due?
1: There is no sentencing database at the moment. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence of what sentences are imposed and and obviously there's reporting in the media of what sentences are imposed. But bearing in mind that most of the criminal work in this country goes on at the district court level, which is a very busy, under-resourced court, that there is no data collection and that is what the report was looking at it was to look at the methodology that could be used to collect data around sentencing and obviously then arising once the data has been collected sentencing guidelines can actually be prepared mm-hmm. and I do think I do think from a From the point of view of the public having trust and confidence in the justice system, there has to be consistency across sentencing and transparency. And I think that's what is is hoped the data collection, the guidelines will give. So that would be the
0: achievement of a database, would it? That, That the public would have more confidence in
1: how sentences are arrived at? Correct, because at the moment, sentences, I mean, there's so much that goes into a judge Imposing a sentence on Mm -hmm. a convicted person. And it's not just the offence. The judge has to take an awful lot more into consideration than just the offence. The circumstances of the offender have to be taken into account as well. And bearing in mind that sentencing isn't about vengeance. It's about deterrence. It's about rehabilitation It's about retribution. There's so many other issues to be considered. Mm.
0: Just when it comes to having set down sentences in a sentencing database, isn't there an expectation that a judge has inherent judgment? And would something like that, having these uh, terms set down, detract from that role?
1: No, I don't think so, because what we're talking about are guidelines. So we're not talking about mandatory sentences, but rather that there would be guidelines or bans for various offences. Now, some of those bans already exist because of decisions of the Court of Appeal and in some cases the Supreme Court where, where, where those guidelines exist already. But I think the idea would be that it would apply to a a wider variety across the offence, across the the, the whole system Mm -hmm. of of, of offending.
0: You mentioned earlier the district court and you said that's a very busy and under-resourced court and that brings me to this report that was released last month that said this country needs 108 extra judges over the next five years. It also said there has to be a large scale change in court and judicial working practices to achieve an efficient uh, justice system. Now you're nodding as I say that so clearly you agree with both of those things do you
1: well i think i think there are first of all there are so many backlogs in the courts at the moment claire arising not only from covid but certainly that had an impact that we need we need more judges and we need those judges across all jurisdictions um primarily the district the circuit and i think the high court mm-hmm. and Society in Ireland has become increasingly complex. Cases are an awful lot more complex now, and they're taking longer. And certainly in the district court, I know the backlogs are, are significant. I can't give you yes. months, but they're significant, significant backlogs. But the impact in the of court. that on not just
0: victims, but people who are accused of crimes, and I, I'm thinking about innocent people here too. I mean, that must have a significant bearing on how how those cases impact all of those people who are involved.
1: Absolutely. I I think it's a truism to say that justice delayed is justice denied. And whether I am somebody who has maybe had an accident at work and I can't work and I don't have an income coming in and I can't bring my case before the court um, without some delay, then that's having an impact on me. If I am somebody who's the victim of a crime and I can't... draw a line in the sand and move on with my life because the case hasn't been heard, then that's impacting on me. And if I am somebody who's accused of a crime and I'm I'm, I, I'm, I'm innocent or perhaps guilty, but I can't draw the line and move on and take my medicine and deal with the sentence mm-hmm. or whatever it's imposed on me. So I, I, I think it impacts across all areas of society and ultimately access to justice is what we need if if we're to have trust and confidence in the system. So so amongst some of the solutions suggested in that uh, report which outlined the problems
0: were five day weeks across all court jurisdictions, longer daily court sittings perhaps with one judge sitting from nine until one and then a second judge sitting from two until six and shorter summer holidays. Sounds fairly obvious you know solutions like that but are they
1: practical? Solutions like that can sound obvious. I think one has to look at the practicalities behind it because I I, I think if you look at the court and and, and a court day or a case appearing in court, that's really probably only the tip of the iceberg in terms of the work that goes into that case. There's an awful lot of, from, from a barrister's perspective, there's an awful lot of preparation work, there's consultations, there's an awful lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. From a judge's perspective, there, there is judgment writing, that there, there, there is research. So it's, it's not that the case or, or that the day, the legal day, is encompassed in a very short number of hours. There's a lot of work that yeah. goes on behind the because scenes.
0: When people see, you know, the suggestion that one judge could do nine to one and then another judge could do two until six, people will be wondering, well, why can't you have two courtrooms running with a judge in both courtrooms working all day long?
1: Why can't that happen? Well, I suppose it comes back to resources first of all we We don't necessarily have the courtrooms for that to happen. Mm-hmm. We, and, and again, a judge a judge doesn't work in isolation, so the judge has to have support staff, there have to be registrars or court clerks. So there's the whole backup resource aspect as well, so that goes back to what we see in the courtroom is
0: not the full picture. Because the impression could be given by what we've just heard, that the legal system in general is not, and the court system, is not working hard enough. Do you think that's a fair criticism?
1: No, I don't think that's a fair criticism at all. I think those who are occupied in the justice system put an awful lot of time and effort into making sure that it runs as efficiently as possible at the moment. Mm -hmm. But it's all down to resources. And if you have more judges, you need more support staff, but then more judges will get through more cases. There's no doubt about that. And that is what we're looking at in terms of reducing the backlog. And I I could say hopefully eliminating it, but maybe that's (laughs) maybe that's utopia.
0: (laughs) And on uh, legal aid. Broadly speaking, it's sometimes criticised, isn't it, for being applied too widely, being granted to some individuals who perhaps don't need it or don't necessarily need it. But then on the other hand, the rate paid to barristers, it's exactly the same as it was all the way back in 2002. Um, That's been causing huge discord, hasn't it? How do you rate the system in terms of its efficiency?
1: I think the, the service being provided by legal aid practitioners, so whether that's Civil or criminal legal aid is an absolutely superb service, and the, the the system society is 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 so well represented by those involved. But I think those involved are not being recompensed or remunerated properly for the the, the work that they put in, primarily because the rates are at two thousand and two rates at mm-hmm. the moment, and the cuts that were imposed during the, 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 the FEMPI period or during the, the, the austerity period have never actually been restored. And that is something we continue to liaise with the Department of Expenditure and Public Reform in relation to.
0: Mm-hmm. And you have been doing that for some time, I know, because I was talking to your predecessor here about the same. I mean, are you getting any response from them, or what's we, going we're on? We're
1: continuing to engage, Claire. I, I think we have a lot of support from both the DPP and the Department of Justice in terms of the efficiencies that were brought about and. The, the idea would be, and, and the Department of Justice is very much behind um, the restoration of fees, but obviously the Department of Expenditure and Public Reform doesn't maybe quite see it the same way at the mm-hmm. moment and we are continuing to liaise with them. You, you
0: mentioned uh, civil legal aid there and I know you're part of the c- Civil Legal Aid Review Group. Now just c- tell people, because they might be very clear on this, what types of cases does that cover?
1: Well, civil legal aid covers, th- th- There are there are... Categories of law that it covers. So most people, I think most of the listeners would be familiar with family law. It also covers other areas of civil law, but there are certain exclusions that it doesn't cover. So most of the civil legal aid that goes on in the country at the moment would be in the area of family law and childcare law. Mm -hmm. Which involves obviously children being taken into care in certain circumstances. And do you have a, a belief that it should be expanded beyond that? It does need to be expanded beyond that. There's absolutely no doubt. So for instance, employment law issues and people appearing before the Workplace Relations Commission at the moment, they're not entitled to legal aid. And a lot of employment cases are actually quite complicated. They involve a lot of law derived from the European Union and the European Court of Justice and if people aren't legally aided in terms of appearing before the Workplace Relations Commission then sometimes they will ultimately have to represent themselves. They're not lawyers, they're lay people and they're dealing with very, very complex issues. Mm -hmm. Another area that isn't actually covered for the most part by um, the civil legal aid at the moment are equality cases. And discrimination cases, now there are certain exceptions, but mostly they are not covered. They also come before the Workplace Relations Commission. And again, they, they are issues that they go deeply and they deeply affect people's lives. And who are you talking to about changing that? So the civil legal aid review group is looking at, and I'm part of that group chaired by the former Chief Justice Frank Clark. We are at the moment looking at what a civil legal aid system should look like. And we have taken in submissions from stakeholders, so those involved in the system. We have a survey from civil legal aid users at the moment and then we're also going out and trying to engage with groups who wouldn't ordinarily engage with the justice mm-hmm. system those who have what we call an unmet legal need vulnerable groups marginalized groups and the idea is is that once that review and information gathering has been completed and it's it's underway at the moment then we will make a recommendation as to what the civil legal aid what a new civil legal aid system would look like now that I'm I'm, I'm being I'm paraphrasing it yes. there, but that's what it's about. So
0: oh. now I want to come back to uh, what I mentioned at the very beginning: equality and the equitable briefing policy that the Bar of Ireland is launching. So you want more women to be selected as barristers because currently it's at twenty percent. That's staggering. What, what do you know? What's going on?
1: So the twenty percent, Claire, is the number of women who are senior counsel, mm-hmm. and. I, I think this goes back to a, a wider conversation that society is having about diversity and where the legal sector is just one sector in which diversity is is, is is an issue. So, and then diversity obviously is more than just gender, but the equitable briefing policy that we're launching tomorrow, five o'clock, um, and it will be launched by the Minister of State at the Department of Justice, James Brown, former colleague of mine actually, And that policy is encouraging solicitors when they are briefing barristers or instructing barristers for their clients to consider gender in the barristers that they actually choose. But if only 20% of the barristers are women, that's going to be very difficult. So it's only 20% at senior council level, mm-hmm. but in over the bar as a whole, 36% are women and at the junior bar level, 40% are women. Yeah, still un-
0: unattractive, though it would seem, for women to enter that profession and certainly to pursue it to a senior level.
1: And, and that's why we're introducing the equitable briefing policy to, I suppose, assist the progression of women. But I would like to say it's not only about women so there are other areas of law and then let's go back to the employment situation I was talking about or in family law where there certainly is a perception that women are predominantly briefed whereas in the commercial court or in certain areas in crime men would be predominantly briefed. So what we're really looking at is just having an equality of opportunity across the entire sector for both men and women and by having a more diverse representation then obviously society is going to be better served.
0: Sarah, thank you very much for coming in. That's thank Sarah very much, and Sarah. Senior Council Chair of the Council of the Bar of Ireland. Dr Mora Finn will be with us after this break. Today with Clareburn. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player app.